All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Your assignment for this week is to finish the entire book of the Psalms, all 150 Psalms. You should read about 21 of them a day, 21 of them a day. Don't procrastinate. All right, but let's begin by asking this question. Can music change hearts and minds? Can music bring about societal revolution, cultural change? Can we make a difference in this world with music, for good or for bad? What do you think, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, seems likely, seems likely. You think about um, Elvis, 1950s. Think about some of the songs that he made popular, like I Can't Help Falling in Love. Mm. But think about the message of I Can't Help Falling in Love. It sounds like a beautiful love song, but imagine singing that to someone else's wife. I can't help fall. Oh, you can't help it, can you? Right? You don't believe in God's predestination. You don't believe in destiny. You believe that you have the ability to make autonomous decisions and that you have uh, self-control and the power of free will. But when it comes to love, oh, I can't help it. I have free will in every area of life except love. When it comes to love, I have no decision in the matter, no self-control. No wisdom or guidance or counsel can make a difference. I just can't help falling in love with someone else's wife. Now, does that sound like a good godly song? No, but you see that song, it's not just a love song. It is a revolutionary song in that it is revolting against the way God has created this world, against order. And not only is it a revolutionary song, it's revolting against a past American tradition, which was more Christian, more family-centered, more marriage-centered. It's revolting against God's natural order. And it's doing so with a catchy melody, you know, sung by a, a, a beautiful person with a beautiful voice and a full accompaniment, and all the media and the, and the uh, computers and technology and instruments to back it up. And does that song's message resonate with people in the 50s? What about the 60s? I mean, if you know anything of what happened in the 60s. And then it comes to today, that basic concept that you just can't help falling in love, is just swallowed as gospel. Everyone just believes that automatically. They don't understand anything about covenantal love or brotherly companionship love. It's all erotic love, eros love. And poof, I fall head over heels and hit my brain and there's nothing I can do about it. I destroyed my family. I destroyed my children. I destroyed my future legacy. All because I couldn't help it. No. Thank you, Elvis, but no thank you. Another song he sang, which I think is a great summary of where his philosophy leads, it's called Fools Rush In. Fools Rush In, where angels what? Where angels won't even go. Because angels are smart. Right? Because angels have wisdom. And the whole song talks about how love makes someone a foolish idiot. Alright? Um, you know, consequences be damned. Let's, let's just follow our hearts and deal, you know, deal with whatever comes tomorrow morning. No, you do not want to live your life that way. That is how you ruin your life. That is how you destroy your life. 
That's how, worst case scenario, you end up in prison with a life sentence as a, a, a child predator. That's, those people are following their hearts, okay? Do not do that. Do not follow your hearts. That's how you blow up your marriage with adultery. That's how you blow up your, your early adult years with fornication and, um, and, and uh, sex outside of marriage, etc. God, of course, has grace for all sorts of sins. I know someone who's in uh, prison for life as a child molester, and he's a Christian, and he's trying to make the, boast, me, the best of it. But he was a fool, and fools rush in where angels, which are much wiser, don't go. See, when you begin to dabble with sin, you don't always get to choose the consequences. You understand? When you plant that seed, you don't know how big the harvest is going to be, because harvests multiply, don't they? That's the multiplication maxim we talked about yesterday. But things get a little bit more political with Elvis. Uh, later in his career, he begins to sing songs like In the Ghetto. In the Ghetto. You know that? It's a song about uh, racial discrimination and political inequity. And if I can dream, he's starting to get into political themes and cultural themes. You see, he and his producers and the powers of the air and the principalities and thrones and dominions of this world that are behind people like Elvis, um, they know that music is revolutionary. Music can change. Music can bring about cultural um, and societal change. Once you leave the 50s and you get into the 60s and you get into the Vietnam era, you have what's called, and you want to write this down in bold print, what's called the protest song. The protest song. And most of these protest songs in the 60s were socialistic, they were liberal, anti-American, anti-Christian. They sang sang against tradition, against family, against Christianity, against the war in Vietnam, you know, which which is perhaps fine either way. But they formed with their music, the hippie generation, so to speak, formed with their music a counter culture. They were raging against the machine. They were standing up for truth and justice and equity and peace and love, man. We're just trying to make the world a better place, man. I ain't no fortunate son. I don't have a, a silver spoon. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had to come up from the, from the ground up and all of these, uh, these dead white men trying to oppress me. Right? Peace and love, man. And you see, once again in the 60s, rock and roll especially. And all the various music that shot off from rock and roll. Alternative rock, math rock, rap that is oftentimes mixed with rock. All of that that flowed out of that was used as an engine, rock and roll especially, was used as an engine of cultural transformation. If you looked at some of the famous rock and roll magazines like Rolling Stones, or you read the lyrics from the famous people of the day, you would see that what they wanted to do is change the world. They were, they were religious, and their music was religious, right? All right. This continues on into the late 60s, into the 70s, and you have music by John Lennon, for example, Imagine. You've heard that song? Imagine there's no heaven. Uh, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, but just try it. Imagine it. Just imagine. Visualize in your own mind. No heaven. Nothing above us. Only sky. No God. No angels. No moral law from God on high. You see, the song is an atheistic, socialistic, demonic anthem. 
with a catchy tune, beautiful lyrics, right? Well, I mean, at least beautiful rhyme schemes. Nice piano, sung by one of the greatest singers of, of that generation. It's powerful. See, Lucifer is a, <clears throat> it was known as uh, the, one of the angels that used music. He knows the power of music. We have the song, We Are the World, where all the hits, all the stars came out to sing, We Are the World. That statement itself is revolutionary. We are the world. We the people of the world. You see, it's anti-American because it's now we the world, not we United States citizens, which makes it anti-covenantal because it's a violation of our national covenants. It's certainly not federal or it's not like we Louisianians and it's certainly not like we Christians or we Neelys. It has no covenantal. It's just we the global world. Sound familiar? Comes straight out of Genesis chapter 13. Right? We the world. We are the ones to make a brighter place. So let's start giving. It's the Tower of Babel. It's religious music. All music is religious. Whether it's uh, Moani. Is that her name? Moana. 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 Looking at herself in the mirror saying, I'm really a boy on the inside. What's the difference? Oh, Mulan? Who's the one that looks in the mirror and says, I'm a boy on the inside? Mulan. All right. Yeah, whether it's Disney or Hollywood or Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, and all the other bands that y'all probably know, Pantera, Tay-Tay. Music is religious, and music is... Music brings about change. It changes hearts. It changes minds. It changes, in fact, cultures. It changes cultures. In the 90s, we had the band Rage Against the Machine. Basically socialistic, uh, communistic, atheistic, gobbledygook. But, but today, something is interesting. Something interesting is happening. There's a little bit of a reaction because the mainstream of music, Hollywood, Disney, all the major record labels, which there's only a few. There's like basically five major record companies that own all the music and all the radio stations. And they basically are driving cultural change among the youth especially. Um, most of that is completely and utterly atheistic, liberal, and is all about sex, money, and drugs. Right? At first it was about cultural change. You know... Love and peace, man. But then it became all about sex, money, and drugs. But if you really think about it, it was always about sex, money, and drugs. Okay? Because there's no such... The devil only uses love and peace as a slogan. You know that, right? He just borrows from God certain slogans. But what it's really all about is money, sex, power, drugs. And so the music now is so debauched and so wicked and so anti-Christ. So that now you have emerging... In the internet, on the internet, of course, the record labels aren't going to allow any of these things. They have to be independent artists on the on the internet. You see protest songs now coming from conservative Christians, from traditional sources. The most famous one that just blew up, number one on iTunes, is "Richmond North of Richmond," like a song against elitists, sort of a a populist song, not exactly a Christian song, but a populist song, a conservative-ish song, but it's a protest song. You're beginning to see protest songs from Christians, from conservatives. Uh, there was a whole movement in the early 2000s uh, called Reformed Rap, 
with uh, Lecrae and Sadashi and all of those guys. They were making revolutionary music, but they're not revolting against God. They're revolting against the status quo, against the mainstream, against the, the, uh, most of the music that is popular. So you see this whole history of music. And uh, the reason I'm showing you all this is because I want you to understand that with music, you really can change the world. You can change hearts. You can change minds. You can change your family. You can change your church. You can change, if God blesses, entire societies if you have the right music. You see, they wanted to, in their minds at least, they believed they were trying to make the world a more peaceful place, no more war, you know, a loving place, no more judgment in the harsh rules of traditional Christian society. But they didn't have the right music. Their music wasn't loving or peaceful. It was satanic. It wasn't in touch with God. But if you have the right music, you really can change the world. If you have music that is true and good and beautiful, you can change the world. If your music is not true or good or beautiful, you cannot change the world because God won't allow you to. Like God's plans will always be established. The plans of Rolling Stone magazine and MTV cannot be established. God does not allow them to go on forever. Make sense? So they can't actually pull off the revolution they were trying. But it's still true that music can change the world. And the music that can change the world more than any other music is the Psalms. God's own psalm book. His hymn book. The Psalms can change the world. Starting with hearts, minds, families, churches, and communities. If only the church would begin singing them. Or I should say, start singing them again. Can the Psalms bring about love and peace in the heart of someone through the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Right? The Psalms are, are the Christian's official protest song. They, the Psalms are our revolutionary hymn book. You want to rage against the machine today? Learn to sing the Psalms. And you will trigger more people than you can possibly imagine, including all of the church ladies. Just you want to... Huh? Just the ladies. Well, especially the ladies. Not from our church, from effeminate churches. Right. You want to revolt against Disney and Hollywood, the elites? You want to revolt against the rich men north of Richmond? Teach your children, teach your church to sing the Psalms. And when y'all read the Psalms, you're going to see how violent they are, right? how humble they are, how true they are. You'll see that they are, they are really our best shot at changing the world through the power of music. Nothing changes the world more than the preaching of God's Word. And second to that is the singing, singing and playing instruments of the Psalms. Got it? Alright, let's get into our next section, the purpose of the Psalm book, the purpose of God's hymn book. First of all, it was a hymn book for Israel. When they worked in the field, they sang the psalms. When they worshipped in the sanctuary, when they worshipped in the synagogues, when they did chapel in their synagogue schools, on the weekdays, they sang the psalms. So what is the purpose? It's the hymn book of Israel. But it also allows you to deal with anything that you're dealing with in your life. 
there is a psalm for every occasion. Are you sad? There's a psalm for it. Are you depressed beyond sadness? There's a psalm for it. Are you afraid and anxious about the near future or the far future? There's a psalm for it. Do you got haters? Raise your hand if you got haters. Uh, there you go. Hey, raise both hands if you got haters. Well, David had more haters than any of us could ever imagine. It's, it almost seems like every other psalm is about him asking God to deal with his haters. Yeah, you got haters, you got people gossiping and slandering you and setting traps for you and wishing the worst of you or thinking the worst of you. There's a psalm for it. There's a psalm for every single occasion. You got a, a giant to fight, there's a psalm for it. You got to confess your sins because you just blew up your life with Bathsheba, there's a psalm for it. You've been keeping your sins secretly and lying about your reading assignments for a long time and it's eating away your bones and tearing away your flesh and you can't sleep at night from guilt. There's a psalm about it. So the Psalms are our hymn book. It's not just for us as individuals, but for the church at large to help us process individually and corporately whatever it is we're going through, whatever, is, whatever we are going through. You know, it can be hard to untangle your feelings. Sometimes you feel anxious and depressed at the same time, and it's hard to be able to put a name on those things. The Psalms can help you articulate that and put a name on it. They're there for you when you don't know what to say, when you don't know what to pray. All you have to do is you read the Psalms and you just pray those words. You're basically praying Jesus' words back to Him, which is wonderful. Probably the best way to pray. And one thing I really like it is that they're, they are great songs for men. They're not gay. Like a lot of the Christian music on the radio right now, it's very effeminate, very uh, internalized, very... Emo, melancholy, slow, repetitive. Jesus is my boyfriend. Dudes don't want to sing that junk. I want to sing, trust me, dudes don't want to sing it. I want to sing songs about God slaughtering our enemies and vindicating His name. And David was a warrior. David was a man of blood and a man of war. And so a lot of the Psalms are very manly. They're not effeminate at all. And they're not new agey and hypnotic and emo like mainstream Christian music that just makes you sad. Um, they are warriors, warrior poems. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Also, David was a man after God's own heart. And so they can make you gentle and they can make you kind and they can make you compassionate and slow to anger and more loving. And most importantly... The purpose of the Psalms is to point you to Christ. Every single one of them points you to Christ in one way or the other. Whether it points to you as uh, to Him as the substitutionary sacrifice, the Savior, the Lord, or the victor over all the earth, they all point to Him. Alright? <clears throat> the Huguenots, for example, um, which uh, they're sort of like our... Our heroes around here, our church's symbol is the Huguenot cross. They were the Reformed Christians um, who were heavily influenced by John Calvin and were French and were filled up all of the French lands, especially in France. Most of them were killed off during the Counter-Reformation and uh, and throughout the, the age of the Inquisition. There was one night in which all the Huguenots were like just brutally murdered. 
Um, the same way has happened in Israel where they busted through the wall and all those Palestinians flowed in and just started murdering Jews in their beds at night. That's what they did to the Huguenot Christians. And the Huguenot Christians, when they, uh, when they were learning their Bible, they were also singing the Psalms. And they had a psalm book. And they had to teach the Psalms to their kids and they had to teach the Psalms in their schools. And so they all knew the Psalms. And the Pope and his uh, oppressors hated the Huguenots so much and hated the fact that they would keep singing psalms even as they were being burned at the stake that they started cutting their tongues out before they would burn them at the stake so that they didn't have to hear them singing the psalms. They started, they would gag them at first, but then the gags kept uh, getting burned off and falling, and then they would sing the psalms while they were being burned at the stake, and it angered the Pope so bad he ordered that all their tongues be cut out before mm-hmm. they get burned at the stake. That's right. The, Hugu- the Huguenots are, uh, you know, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the Huguenots, being the Cajuns and all that we are. So you need psalms. The reason I tell you that story is because you need psalms for when you're burned at the stake, for when you're fighting a tyrant, for when you're running for your life. You need manly psalms. Imagine seeing Lauren Daigle, you say, while you're being oppressed by a tyrant or locked in chains in prison, you say, or that's, yes. Imagine singing Jesus Take the Wheel while being burned at the stake. No, you need a song that's got, you need a song with some guts. You need a song that's tough and deep and rich. You know, you don't need a, a Daddy, Daddy God, uh, Daddy God uh, hypnotic trance music sung over and over again so you can go into your deep emo feels. What you need is something rich and powerful and manly and robust. And the Psalms is our go-to. Psalms is our go-to. <laughs> all right, moving on. Next, the structure of the Psalms. First of all, each Psalm was written over the course of many years. Most of them are written by David, but some were written by Solomon, and some were written by Moses, and some were written by a man named Asaph, a psalmist. And then there's some we're not exactly sure who wrote them. And they're actually, the Psalms is actually five different books of Psalms. Almost like if you had five hymn books and they were edited and compiled and put together. Which was probably done by Ezra or his uh, staff uh, sometime after the Babylonian exile. Psalm 1, the first one is the introduction to all the Psalms and the introduction to book 1. And then the last five Psalms are praise psalms which conclude the whole book. That's the basic structure. That's the basic structure. Y'all hear that noise? Is that a garbage truck maybe? And throughout the psalm, it makes use of many different poetic devices. And these are the ones you have to know for sure. So you want to write these down. Parallelism, that's our first one. The poetic devices that the psalms use. Parallelism. Psalm 2 sings, Why, why, help me with get the key. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? That's parallelism. It says the same thing, basically, but adds a little bit to it. So why do the nations rage? Is It means, why are they so dumb that they keep raging against God? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is obviously implied that their raging is useless. 
Because God's plans will be established. He's sovereign, not them. Then the second line says the same thing. Why do the peoples of the earth plot in vain? They plot and scheme in vain. See, that's parallelism. You see how it said it, and then it said it the second way? And the reason that... that or uh, here's another one. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? We use, in English, we use rhyming. We use a lot of rhyming. Roses are red, violets are blue. Benjamin dropped his gum and distracted all of you. So that's a that's rhyme scheme for most English people. But in Hebrew, it's parallelism. And one of the mechanisms for that is that the speaker or the singer would say the first line, and then the people would respond back in participation. So I would say, why do the nations rage? And you would say, yes, but in key. All right, so that, <laughs> that's parallelism. And there's different types of parallelism. You need to know all three. First, a synonym. That's where you say the same thing twice. Synonym. Synonym, S-Y-N-O-N-Y-M. And then the second one, antithetic, antithetic. Anti, anti-thetic. Like thesis, but thetic. Antithetical, antithetic, antithesis. Y'all know thesis from other parts of this class. And that's where you contrast the line, where you say the line and then you say the next line opposite. And then there's climactic, where each line builds on the next line before it. The line builds upon the other. <laughs> that's the various types of parallelism. Now, when you're reading the Psalms or praying through the Psalms, you need to understand that these were meant to be sung. God didn't inspire the tunes because, well without going into it too much, music is a language too, and every culture has its own language. Every culture uses different scales, different modes, and so God didn't inspire the language, He didn't inspire the music, so that each culture of all the nations around the world could put it into their own musical language. Make sense? Jude, might, you might know the names for that. like Phrygian, Dorian, there's all these different modes, different languages of music that different people use and different scales. Like in, in Japanese culture, they use all the black keys, right? Phrygian. So that's Phrygian, yeah. China. But it's also Polish, isn't it? Didn't we? Weren't we talking about that the other day? But each, each culture uses, has a different musical language. It's very interesting. And so as the gospel goes forth into all the languages, the idea is that the Psalms would be put into the language, Hebrew, English, Mandarin, and the musical language of all the peoples of the whole world. And that's, you know, that's happening. That's already been happening. All right, another poetic device that is used is called chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. Another poetic device that's used. The first poetic device is parallelism, and there's different types, synonym, antithetic, and climactic. And the second poetic device is chiasm. I'm going to draw it on the board for you. So the basic chiastic structure looks like this. 
could also look like this. Or it could go from A all the way up. It can go all kind of things and then back down. It kind of forms an arch. Um, so it would be like, it would say something like this. God is my refuge. Protects me from enemies, blesses my friends. God is my refuge. So it, it deals that there's a, if there's a theme that represents A, it will be repeated again at the end of the poem. And and the way a chiastic structure works is that it builds up to a climax and then it then it comes back down almost like a uh, like a story like a story does so you can think of all of human history really as a chiasm with the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ at the peak you see what i mean so all history is leading up to it and then everything else flows from it so that's chiastic structure and the psalms, some of the psalms are massive chiasms, and you can you could point you could figure it out if you took your time. You could see the different themes. There's books of the Bible that the whole book is a chiasm. That's just a, a thing that's all over the Bible in Hebrew poetry. Now the next is acrostic. Y'all know acrostic already. You should. The next poetic device is acrostic. A C R O S T I C. Acrostic, and that's like a, a memory device. A mnemonic, mnemonic, mnemonic Yeah, Psalm one nineteen is A to Z, but in Hebrew. Aleph to Z, I think. It doesn't translate well in English, but basically every line of Psalm one nineteen begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet and goes all the way from A to Z. And several of the psalms have acrostics like that. We do that in English. We have acrostics. And then last but not least, refrain. Refrain. Ends with an N. And that's where lines are repeated for emphasis. So... There might be a few lines of poetic verse, then the repetition of a, of a same line. Then a few more lines of poetic verse, then a repetition. And the point is not to enter into a, a, a Buddhist trance, swaying back and forth, holding your little TV. That's not the point. The point is emphasis so that you can uh, really get it down into your heart and really believe it. So... Just to conclude, God is musical, right? He created us in His image, and that's why we are musical. And when He wrote the Bible, He did not write a math textbook. He did not write a theology textbook. He wrote a book that is mostly stories and songs and poems. Isn't that interesting that God would reveal Himself to us through art? It's not a dry textbook. I think that's very interesting. And, uh, and basically, what that means is that music is incredibly powerful and very important for us. <clears throat> Martin Luther wouldn't even hire teachers in his school unless they knew music. <clears throat> he, 
he believed that people who knew music um, were perhaps the most powerful of all and could influence culture dramatically. He wrote a lot of songs, and we still sing some of his songs today. Music can shape hearts, it can shape cultures, and second to the preaching of God's Word is mighty to build a culture or change a culture. And that's why we here at Christ Church Academy and Christ Church are learning the Psalms so that it can shape our community as it continues to grow. So that over the generations, we have a, a strong, reformed Christian community. Anytime there's reformation in the church, people begin to sing the Psalms again. That's why Calvin wrote the Psalms for the French-speaking world, Luther for the German-speaking world, and, uh, and that's why we're learning Psalms here in chapel and at church, etc. And that's why I hope all of you are learning music so that you can contribute um, to this powerful cultural force in our church. Got it? All right, that's it for today.